0: The clue was the embalmers. The clue was the insurance companies. They started seeing these massive clots. Embalmers had never seen anything like it and only started
1: six months into the vaccination program. Today, sit down with Steve Kirsch, the executive director of the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. And if you stick with the NIH and the
0: CDC-approved
1: protocols,
0: you get compensated and there's no liability. This has cost
1: millions of lives. An entrepreneur and philanthropist, he's raised millions of dollars to fund outpatient clinical trials for repurposed drugs during the pandemic. There's one study that shows just rinsing your nose with
0: a saline solution can reduce your chance of hospitalization by a factor of eight. No vaccine can do that. This is American Thought
1: Leaders and I'm Janja Kelly. Steve Kirsch, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to be here. Thank you. Steve, we're here at the FLCCC conference, uh, focusing on treatment of spike related disease. Um, You know, I couldn't help but notice, you know, you don't have an advanced degree like many of the very, very illustrious doctors here do. Um, Yet a lot of people seem to have a lot of respect for the work you've done and your particular attention to looking at data. And I want to talk about that. Before we get there, very early in the pandemic, you were involved in this COVID Early Treatment Fund. You, you started this COVID Early Treatment Fund. And but early treatment was something that, frankly, officially didn't exist. Well,
0: it always existed, but nobody was pursuing it for this disease because everyone was told that the vaccine was the only way out, that we had this pandemic, and that there's one exit door and it's labeled the COVID vaccine. And when I talked to doctors who I had funded over the past 20 years, all of them said that the fastest, cheapest, and safest way to end the pandemic was to use repurposed drugs and supplements and see which ones would work against the virus. And so that's what I did. I put in a million dollars of my own money. I raised $5 million from other people. I recruited a scientific advisory board of 14 people. And we started advertising that we wanted to fund people who were working on outpatient clinical trials to test repurposed drug treatments so that we could prove to the medical community that this was a viable way to treat Covid, And you couldn't not do this. You know, that's that's the weird thing, right? Because it's like if there's a fire in front of you, you could say, oh, we need to build a fire station, and then we need to buy the fire trucks, and then we need to train people to do that. Or you could go to your faucet, take a bucket of water, and see if you could put the fire out yourself. Why wouldn't you do, why wouldn't you try the simple thing first before going to the time and expense and the you know, billions of dollars uh, expense that takes would take at least a year, if not more, to solve this problem when you could try the quick and easy, let's test this, let's test this, let's, test this. let's take what's off on the shelf right now and let us apply that to this virus and see if we can make a difference with the stuff that's already there and in fact what we discovered was that many of these drugs were remarkably effective. In fact there's one study that shows just rinsing your nose with a saline solution can reduce your chance of hospitalization by a factor of 8. No vaccine can do that today now, the nasal rinse is virtually free. You just have to buy the water, the distilled water, and salt. And you mix it together and you rinse your nose twice a day as soon as you know you have COVID. And there's no risk. Nobody has ever died that I have heard of doing a nasal rinse on their nose. Nobody has been disabled. Safety profile is, is extreme and the efficacy is amazing. But why isn't there a trial on that? You know, so it, we had other uh, drugs that looked promising. Uh, we funded the fluvoxamine uh, research right. and it was featured on 60 Minutes. And 60 Minutes wasn't allowed to say that this could cure COVID. It could say, oh, well, they're, they're studying it. And what we showed was that in the original phase two trial, which is a relatively small trial, You had 80 people or so on each side, one getting the placebo, one getting the drug. And there would be zero hospitalization on one side and 8.2% hospitalization rate for people who didn't take the drug. Now, 100% effective. So I was on a, a, a webinar Uh, with a doctor who happened to be the, the the track doctor at Golden Gate Fields and it turned out that days after my interview they had an outbreak at Golden Gate Fields big outbreak of COVID and so the doctor was persuaded by this phase two study and he did what the medical journal said not to do he offered this drug fluvoxamine to people and if they wanted to take the drug they could And if they didn't want to take the drug, they didn't have to take the drug. And what happened was that the people who felt really sick said, "Mm, I think I'm going to need some help. I'll take the drug. The people who felt really well said, I don't need a drug. Why should I take the risk of a drug when I don't feel bad? 12.5% of the people who didn't feel bad ended up hospitalized. And one of them died. And there's a relatively small number, so this is a a significant amount. The people who took the drug, they all, three days later, typically sometimes it was two days, sometimes three days, sometimes four days, they recovered almost instantly. And their biggest complaint was, how come I, I can't get back to work? I feel fine. And when people saw this, it was only like, 30% of the people that opted for the drug when they got COVID because they were unsure this is untested, but it's a tight knit community. And so people who were on the drug told other people. And so when the other people came down at the track with COVID, they went to the doctor and they said, I want the drug. And even the track management who didn't have COVID said, I want a prescription for this in case I get COVID. And also there was no long haul COVID. If you got the drug early, 50 milligrams of fluvoxamine twice a day for 14 days. If you got the drug early, and pretty much everyone did because the the track doctor was there, nobody had any long-haul COVID symptoms, Hmm. zero. Out of 77 people, nobody had long-haul COVID. In the group that didn't get the fluvoxamine, 40% had long-haul COVID symptoms. That's not luck. That could only be explained by the drug working. And there were no long-term side effects. There were no downsides. There was no nothing in terms of the side effects that would indicate any kind of safety signal. Flavoxamine's been around for 30 years. So what happened? We we applied to the FDA for an EUA. The FDA said insufficient evidence. We're not convinced. It was not a randomized trial, because the people who were the sickest wanted the drug. And I'm saying, whoa, wait a minute. This is better than randomized. You were getting the, the crippled people, the sick people, and we're making them well. And so it's not even a fair test. It's like, it's like playing tennis with two hands tied behind your back and winning. FDA said, hey, it wasn't a randomized trial. You know, and it took them six weeks to come back and say, well, insufficient evidence where we can't approve your EUA application. It was six weeks. This is something that is killing people. That is a world emergency. And it took the FDA six weeks to act on data which could be reviewed in an hour. The fix is in. They're not going to prove anything, even after a phase three trial done in Brazil that was approved by the WHO. Even after that came back positive, the NIH still has a neutral recommendation on fluvoxamine. And there is no EUA. In fact, they tried again to get an EUA after that trial finished and proved again that it worked. And the FDA, again, said, we're not going to give you an EUA. But we get an, we get an EUA on a drug that is tested in eight mice. And all eight mice who got the drug, this is the new bivalent vaccine, mm-hmm. were challenged with the Omicron virus. All eight mice were infected by the by the virus by omicron this is the omicron variant the bivalent booster they've already had their primary series and they get boosted and with a specific omicron specific booster and all eight mice get omicron that is approved by the FDA for use in 100 million people, you know, whatever, however many people take the bivalent booster. Explain to me how you can grant an EUA which says the benefits outweigh the risk. Where is the benefit? There's no evidence of a benefit, yet they approve it for that. But but for fluvoxamine, which had a stellar track record, and an incredible safety record for 30 years,
1: they said, no, insufficient evidence. Before we continue, okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you got here. Because you said you had been funding doctors, for example, right, before all this happened. You had you know, a serious disease that you funded doctors to try to help you right. figure out yeah. how to, how to, how to you know, heal from that. So maybe give me a little sense of your background and also your professional background. Yeah.
0: Sure. So I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a computer geek. I mm-hmm. uh, went to MIT, uh, got bachelor's and master's uh, there and started, well, I worked for a company and then I ended up starting companies. I ended up doing startup companies. So I did a mouse company, an optical mouse company. I invented the optical mouse. I did... Uh, Infoseek, one of the uh, first search engines on the internet, did frame technology, uh, It's sort of desktop publishing. And I used to have this, this resume in LinkedIn, you know, of all of the, the things and companies I did, and, you know, deep descriptions of, of each of my startups. You know, and, and, and a couple of them were, were billion-dollar startups. But LinkedIn basically removed all of my accounts, all, all of my connections, removed my accounts and permanently banned me because I made two posts that the vaccines were unsafe. For that, my career was wiped off of LinkedIn. Wikipedia then, I I used to, I got a National Caring Award. It was presented to me by Hillary Clinton. There are only a few people every year that get a National Caring Award. It's a a big honor. It's a big um, uh, event held in Washington, DC. And Hillary, Senator, Clinton was the person presenting my award to me. And they had different people different, present to different people. And it's a, it's a high honor. That used to be part of my Wikipedia profile. As soon as I wrote my article saying, these vaccines are not safe, my National Caring Award disappeared from my Wikipedia profile. There are no words to describe how unethical that is. Medium banned me because I said that fluvoxamine was 100% effective in all the trials, which it was at the time. And so when you tell the truth on social media, if you speak against what the government narrative is, you end up being banned and you end up being Demonized, And when I started speaking out against the vaccine, within a week, all 14 members of the Scientific Advisory Board quit. They said they never wanted to talk to me
1: again. Of, of your Scientific
0: Advisory yes, Board? that yeah. I had recruited for the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. All 14 of those people said, take me off your website. Remove me from your videos. We don't want to be associated with you at all never contact us again. And I said, I don't want to be a misinformation spreader. If I got it wrong, please tell me how I got it wrong. Because I'm just looking at the data, and it seemed very straightforward to me that this is the most dangerous vaccine in human history. The data is clear. Did I make a mistake? And they said, don't ever contact us again. What you're doing is wrong. It's evil. You are costing lives. We never want to speak to you again, and we won't tell you
1: anything about what you said is wrong. Tell me a little bit about um, this. Uh, you know, your the research that you were involved with before all of this, before COVID. Before we jump into, because I, I absolutely want to talk about the data, by the way. Yeah. part of Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, so I had. I made a lot of money for my startups. And I put that into a charitable fund. And what I wanted to do was good work. So I, uh, I had an ambition to cure all diseases. Like, you know, how many diseases could I cure with, with the money that I had? It wasn't a lot of money at the time. It grew to about $100 million. And so I hired a staff. And the directive was fund projects where we can make a difference in diseases. And so one of the projects was glaucoma, for example, because there hadn't been any progress in glaucoma. And I said, sure. And I didn't have glaucoma. You know, it's just like, hey, let's look for opportunities where, where we can make a difference with the money and sort of doing things a little bit differently to try to get a better result. And so, uh, for example, we partnered with the Glaucoma Research Foundation and funded this program called Catalyst for and, uh, and I'm still writing big checks. I recently uh, made a, a $1, $1.5 million commitment to fund glaucoma research. And we did that because we thought it would be, could make a difference. And so we recruited a scientific advisory board in our foundation to go and advise us on where to park the money. You know, who should we fund? We funded a lot of uh, top scientists. One, in fact, ended up winning the Nobel Prize. So that gave me a background in terms of funding medical research and understanding medical research. And then 10 years later, I developed glaucoma. And hey, fortuitous, I, you know, I had no idea at the time, but isn't that uh, remarkable that a disease that I started funding uh, a cure on was a disease that I later in life then
1: uh, found myself a victim of. So this presumably help for sitting here Yeah, I mean, it it,
0: it basically, I had a background then in in talking to scientists and understanding clinical trials and reading scientific studies and and so forth, because that was part of the job to responsibly deploy funds to fund these researchers. And I also developed Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is a blood cancer that's incurable, and again, reached out to find the researchers And I helped to fund uh, research that could lead to a cure. So uh, things like having a cell line for Waldenstrom's that was reliable, uh, that was human-based, and uh, was stable,
1: and so forth, is one of the projects that we funded, so that we could try to move the research forward. So it strikes me as incredibly odd, and I keep bringing up this question with people I interview. And I didn't fully grasp it myself because I didn't have nearly the experience you did. But as you said earlier, right? Why not get some water and try to douse the fire instead of, you know, building the whole infrastructure beforehand? Right. Right. I mean, right. Just, why not try easy before you try hard? I didn't fully grasp early on that basically people were told only come to get treatment once you're really sick. Yeah. And it. That's what they were told. They were
0: told that there was no cure. Fauci told them there's no cure. And I actually went to the Gates Foundation, right, because I had limited funds. And I went to the Gates Foundation. I said, hey, would you help me fund early treatment? Because that's the fastest, safest, cheapest way. Let's try what's on the shelf. They said, no, we're out of money. This is the Gates Foundation saying we won't give you a dime because we're out of money. The fix is in. They're out of money because they're, they're deploying every dime for the vaccine program, the vaccine program, the vaccine program. We had very promising drugs uh, on the
1: shelf that, that looked promising well, that should have been tested. And, and as I've learned, you know, some were tested against SARS-1, against MERS. You know, there are papers, there are NIH-funded papers that tested against, uh, I think it was hydroxychloroquine against MERS, if I recall correctly. So I, l- let me mention this. So there's something I just uh, read uh, Dr. Joe Latipo's book, a uh, new book. And one of the things the most fascinating thing in there for me was, he mentions how doctors are taught about vaccines. And he talks about how it's really different than the way they're taught about all other medic, essentially all other medications. There's a certain kind of reverence that, you know, doctors are basically taught that these things have, you know, transformed the world. And it's almost he he likened it to a kind of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this, you know, aside from, you know, there being an edict around this about how this could be treated or not, that there's just this kind of inherent sense in the medical community that this is this always is going to be the answer.
0: Yes, yes, this is the big myth.
1: And, hey, I believe the myth, I bought the Kool Aid.
0: Doctors believe the Kool-Aid, because they're taught this. And doctors don't have time to research everything. Nobody has time to research everything. So you have to trust people. And everybody's saying, oh, vaccines are safe and effective. Oh, the vaccine's ended polio. The vaccine's ended smallpox, blah, blah, blah. And you have all these stories that you hear. And when you're only hearing one side of the narrative, you tend to believe it, right? There's nobody there to challenge it. It's like with these vaccines on CNN, you only hear one side of the narrative. It's as if the other side doesn't exist. It's almost like, oh, yeah, we're CNN. You know, we try to get somebody on the other side of the narrative, but there's nobody opposing it. All the doctors are saying it's safe and effective, and everybody should take it, and that is what you should do because everybody's saying it. Fundamentally, the news media is supposed to say, well, this side said this. This I'd said this, you decide. But what they've turned into is an advocacy organization for the government narrative. And it's not that they are fans of the government, but the government narrative, of course, is the mainstream medical thinking that is influenced by Tony Fauci. It was Tony that funded the gain of function research that he wasn't supposed to fund that led to the creation of the COVID virus. And it was US biotechnology that was involved in this. And we know that because there is a Moderna patent application that had a very interesting 19 nucleotide sequence that is not found in a natural virus. Now it is found in nature, but it is never found in a virus. And it can't get into a virus if somebody didn't put it there. And everybody knows that the first outbreak happened at that Wuhan wet market. Do you know how far it is from the Wuhan Institute of Technology and the wet market? They're right across the river. Why is it? that when the investigators who are looking into this went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they didn't open their doors and say, hey, hey, no problem. We've got nothing to hide here. The sequence of our virus that we've been working on doesn't match at all the sequence of what broke out at the Wuhan wet market. No. You weren't allowed to see anything at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And in fact, Jeffrey Sachs, who was put in charge of an independent investigation committee by the Lancet, he started looking, recruited a committee, they started looking at the data, and he came back two years later and he said, this is a man-made virus. So what happened when the news broke about this virus? Tony sends off a message to his friends, Christian Anderson and some other people, saying, hey, what do you think? And they come back and say... Definitely man made. Couldn't have come out of nature because of the, the, the unique sequences. And then we see redacted emails on the FOIA requests. And then magically, a week later, it came out of nature with no new evidence. Hmm, why were those emails redacted? Do you know that any committee chairman in Congress? meaning any Democrat, who is the committee chairman, could go to the NIH and request Tony Fauci's unredacted emails, and we would know the truth. Why wouldn't they do that? Don't we want to know where the virus came from? In fact, when Jeffrey Sachs started getting close and said, hey, it came out of US biotechnology, what happened? He was shut down. All of a sudden, nobody wanted to know where this virus came from. Now, the CEO of Moderna was asked the question, this 19 nucleotide sequence that's found in SARS-CoV-2, it matches the sequence in your patent. How does that happen? He said, I will look into that. We still don't have an answer. It's been a year later. How's it going? Why isn't the press asking him that question? How it's going? I mean, we don't want to repeat the same mistake. How could we not know? It's like, if somebody goes and shoots a million people, do you want to know who's responsible? Or when you start getting close to finding the source, do you say, hey, let's cut the funding? I'm not interested in finding out who killed those million Americans, who's responsible for killing the million Americans? other than maybe Rand Paul and Senator Ron Johnson, who's interested in challenging Tony Fauci and how magically every single early treatment protocol for COVID is deemed to be not acceptable to the NIH. Wow, all these early treatment protocols that work, the Farid and Tyson protocol, used on over 10,000 people with no hospitalizations and no deaths. Why is the NIH not even interested in looking at their data? This has cost millions of lives. And not only that, they compounded the problem by not just withholding drugs, but when you went into the hospital, they gave you a treatment protocol that was almost certain to kill you. This is why we have so many COVID deaths, because the hospitals basically follow a very bad protocol for treating COVID, but it's approved by the NIH. And if you stick with the NIH and the CDC approved protocols, you get compensated, and there's no liability. You, Your Honor, I did what the authorities told me to do. We treated him by the book. I'm sorry he died, but we did. We we're not liable because we followed the directive of the government now if we really want to end covid in this country we should be incentivizing hospitals based on their cure rate why right? if you got 100 patients come in and nobody dies we're going to you know pay you $50,000 a patient and if people die we're only going to pay you $2,000 like you should be incentivizing
1: the outcome that you want, and of course, the incentives aren't transparent. There seems to be a, a terrible lack of transparency throughout. I mean, even just sort of gathering data. I was just looking at, uh, you know, one of your recent posts. Actually, you were, you responded to um, again, uh, Surgeon General of Florida Joe Latipo's, um new guidance, uh, basically saying that under thirty-nine males shouldn't touch the vaccine. Um, because the costs uh, outweigh the benefits. I mean, essentially, he's got a whole study around that. Um, You wrote a piece to support him, but you also showed some very troubling data, most of which is, you know, you you got from a whistleblower, I think. Yeah, Yeah. so Joe's study
0: basically showed that there is a was one like 1.96 times, so it's almost a doubling, effectively a doubling of the rate of death, cardiac death following in the 28 days following vaccination, it's elevated by a factor of two versus the, the remaining period of the study. And so that higher rate in that 28 day period, he associates with, well, that is 28 days right after the vaccine. If the vaccine was like a sailing shot, the rate should be the same over the the time period of the study. It shouldn't be elevated at all. And what he should have done was he should have looked at the rate over a six-month period from when you got your last shot and looked at the rates of death. How did they go? Did they go up and down or whatever? But he made an assumption that if the vaccine kills people, and it's a perfectly reasonable assumption. If the vaccine kills people, it'll probably be in the first 28 days, right? Because you see the VAERS numbers, and the various numbers go up um, and then they go down and they they, they taper off uh, after 28 days. So it looks like, hey, if it kills people, the VAERS number shows that it's going to kill people within the first 28 days. But you see, that's a mirage. Because if it kills people after 28 days, it's not going to get reported in the VAERS system because nobody's going to associate it with the vaccine. If it kills people six months after the vaccine, it's not going to get reported into the VAERS system. Nobody's going to make the connection. How could you make a it connection? It's six months, nothing happened, and then you suddenly die? Come on, it can't be the vaccine. Or can it? So Joe basically said, let's look at the rate in the first 28 days, and then let's look at the rate for the next four months after that and compare them, and if the rate is higher, then we know it it must be the drug because it shouldn't have changed, right? It's completely random. So he found a 2x elevation for uh, a cohort, uh, which is 18 to 39 uh, males uh, uh, that that took the drug. And um, it could be limited to the mRNA, and he started eliminating, he said, oh, gee, it's only affecting the mRNA vaccines. And so, you know, so he made some calculations and it turned out statistically significant elevation. So clearly, there was an elevation of cardiac deaths. But he found also that, hey, gee, it looks like these vaccines are actually life-saving for people, that it lowered mortality versus baseline, because he found fewer deaths in the 2018 period. Well... In, in, in one of the older Yeah, in, in, the, in the older yeah. cohorts, yeah. and you know if you were younger than 18 and so forth. So depending on what he looked at and whether he's looking at all-cause mortality versus cardiac mortality, Mm. okay? And so it looked like, wow, this vaccine looks like it's saving lives. There's one little problem with that conclusion. And he never concluded it because it wasn't statistically significant. The problem with that conclusion, of course, is that I know that these vaccines are nothing but deadly. There's a peak of mortality at, like, five months out from the vaccine. There are two time constants. The vaccine will either kill you very quickly, within weeks, because of inflammation, or it will cause clogging in your arteries that will show up about five months later. And so there are two different mechanisms going on, and they have two different time constants. And it turns out that the five-month death is actually larger. There are more people that die five months later than there are that happened within the first 28 days. So, when you're, so he's now comparing this higher death rate versus the lower death rate, but it's still elevated from baseline. When you look at the first 28 days compared to the numbers here, it looks like, wow, this is like one third the deaths of baseline, but it's not baseline, that's the problem. Because he only, in his study, he only looked at people who were vaccinated and died. He never compared with the unvaccinated. Hmm. So rising tide lifts all boats and it lifts the, the death in after 28 days. It starts raising those numbers so that when you do a comparison of the first 28 days versus the other period, you say, wow, the drug looks like it's reducing it from the baseline rate because you never thought that the baseline rate was actually excess deaths due to the vaccine. And so then when you see this all-cause data that of course doesn't look at that, but just says, wow, there's a big spike in vaccination in April, and there's a big spike in deaths in September on September 9th. Five months difference. And guess what? It's in multiple countries. Hmm. There are at least five different analyses that show this five month delay. Something is five months, five point, you know, uh, five months. You know, it's it's somewhere between five and six months. And so I'm getting these independent analyses done in other countries, where you're seeing the exact same delay. And it's not a oh well that's because they gave the booster shots then. No, because the people who are dying. The death records show, oh, they died five months after their last vaccine. So you have to, again, you look at at the people who died and you look at when did they get shot last. The clue was the embalmers. The clue was the insurance companies. The embalmers never saw anything until midway in 2021. And then they started seeing these massive clots that were, they're white. And they're solid and they don't look like blood clots in fact they're not blood these these things are massive clots some of them are six feet long and bombers have never seen anything like it and only started six months into the vaccination program Hmm. was it because the vaccine suddenly changed no it's because it took six months to clog up your arteries it's like how do, you know, what, how do people die when, when their arteries get clogged up? You think from birth they do that? No, it takes decades mm. to clog your arteries with plaques and so forth. In this case, it takes months for this spike protein to essentially accelerate this, this process of creating these amyloid proteins that are clogging up your, your blood vessels. So the embalmers were a clue. Hmm, only started happening half, Half a year into it, that's when they started seeing it. So that kind of makes sense, you know, because some people were uh, vaccinated in January. So it takes six months from January. Okay, there you are in the middle of the year, which is when the bombers started seeing the uptick. Mm. And then you said you saw the same thing with the insurance companies. Q3, Q4, massive excess deaths in young people. Nothing in Q1 and Q2. How come you didn't see the deaths in April? Nobody could figure that out. Once you open your mind to considering the possibility that maybe there's a six-month delay, then all of a sudden, all the data fits. And I I presented uh, this uh, today at this FLCCC conference. And then I talked to Meryl Nass, who's one of the speakers. And uh, she's been in this field for a long, long time. And I said, did you disagree with anything I said? She said, no. I said, did you know about the five-month period? He said, yeah, yeah, I knew about that. Since that article appeared, other people did independent analyses to confirm that this was happening in other countries. So it's not just me, it's not just me looking at the data in a strange way.
1: Yeah, and I think you mentioned that there were basically, you know, five data sets from different places that show a kind of a similar picture of this, you know, sort of increase in all-cause, all-cause mortality, um, five-odd months out. Now, so... So this is the point at which you would think that you know there would be some very in-depth research that would be being done to actually figure out what's going on, right? Yeah. But we're not seeing that. No,
0: of course not. We're looking the other way. You know, there was a the, the Israeli government wasn't collecting much safety data at all in the first year after they rolled out the vaccines. They said to the population, you get vaccinated, you get double vaccinated, you get boosted, blah 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 they were collecting no safety data. It was very difficult to report safety data. So a year after Israel started vaccinating people, they said, hey, we should get serious about the safety data because people are asking questions. So they recruited a top-notch team of Israeli scientists to design the collection system to collect the data and see how safe it was. So... They started doing that, and about two months into it, they report, hey, we've got a problem here. This, this uh, vaccine is, is not safe. We're seeing safety signals. It's not the final report. We'll have that in, it was uh, June of, uh, of 2022, right? Because it started um, in basically uh, early uh, 2022. And so they reported that. And, and the is- Israeli government said, hey, thanks very much. We'll, let people know and then when they met in in June with the final report on the first five uh, most frequent adverse events uh, they asked they said hey how come you didn't tell the Israeli people what was going on we told you this this thing is you know throwing out safety signals and it's these side effects are serious and they're caused by the vaccine how come you never said anything so what did they do They sat on it for two months and then issued a report saying there's nothing to see here. So that would be the end of it, except for one little problem. One of the people on the meeting recorded the call, and it shows that the Ministry of Health was informed that these vaccines are not safe and effective, and it showed that the vaccine is actually causing harm in lots of different areas that have not been reported or recognized by the drug companies or the FDA or anybody else. So, a uh, super troubling result. And so, reporter gets, the, gets her hands on it, and she asked the media, hey, anybody want to see the tapes? And nobody is interested in seeing the tapes. There's no investigation on the Israeli Ministry of Health for burying that information. The only place that takes it, that wants to take the story, is GB News. Neil Oliver at GB News. These guys are the only ones that want to promote the story. And then the Epic Times says we want to see the data too. So we arrange to have a, a private briefing for the Epic Times. They come in with a someone who speaks Hebrew so they can verify everything that was said, and they write up four stories on it. Epic Times and GB News, that's it. Total News Blackout everywhere else. How can you have a safety study on a vaccine which people are being mandated to take, showing significant adverse events and nobody wants to see the data? So I thought, oh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. So I email all the members of the outside communities of the FDA and CDC saying, hey, would you like to see the data? (laughs) I'm good friends. With the, with the journalist that has the tapes. And we can arrange a private briefing for you. No response at all. So I make a phone call. I, make, I send text messages to the chair of the ACIP committee. Right, This is the final stop. Between When you get a vaccine, like the final the buck stops here is that ACIP committee, the outside committee of the, the CDC, to to pass on a recommendation to say, yes, you should do this, right? So before the CDC does something, they're supposed to go to the ASIP committee and get independent approval. So the chief guard on this committee, the head of the committee, is Professor Grace Lee at Stanford University. Grace Lee has never responded to any email communication or anything I have ever sent her in my entire life. I wasn't expecting anything on this one either. But I said, Grace, hey, I got the Israeli data. Surely you want to see it. She doesn't respond to anything. There is absolutely no reason in the world for not wanting to see the data unless you have willful blindness. And that's what it's all about. You know, there are thousands of safety signals of symptoms in VAERS thousands that are elevated by ten times or more versus a normal vaccine. How is that possible? That they couldn't, that they don't even see a safety signal for menstrual issues. Menstrual issues popped up in the Israeli data as the number one most significant signal in their safety studies was menstrual issues. You'll never guess what the number one Symptoms in the VARS database that were elevated from the COVID vaccines. Menstrual problems. What do you know? The VARS system is actually accurately re- reflecting the same information that the Israelis collected. Hmm. But even though these menstrual problems are elevated by close to 10,000 times normal, the CDC has never recognized menstrual problems as a side effect of the COVID vaccines. How's that possible? In fact, the NIH has never recognized that vaccine injuries could be caused by the COVID vaccines. They spent, Dr. Nath at this NIH, spent a year studying people who are vaccine injured. And he said, we can't make a causal connection between you're getting the vaccine and all these symptoms that you're having. That is inexplicable. Because I did a survey. I got 1,000 people to report into me their symptoms after they got the vaccine. These are people who are vaccine injured. These people go from having No symptoms at all are perfectly normal to having up to 86 symptoms that are unique to people who have vaccine injury and that most people would have zero of. Stuff like bleeding behind your eyes, like, (laughs) you know, this stuff never happens to normal people or inability to speak or I had to crawl to the bathroom in order to get to the bathroom these people have, 10% of them have 30 or more of these symptoms. I have zero. How can you go from zero to 30 to 86 of, you know, out of about 120 different symptoms that were on the list right after you get vaccinated? I mean, it's not the day after, but you know, these people very quickly develop and go from perfectly normal to my life is ruined. Marsha Gee, perfectly healthy nurse, top nurse, uh, UC San Diego. And she is, they think so highly of her that she's one of the first to get the vaccine. She gets vaccine injured within 24 hours of her shot. And what do they do? They throw her under the bus. They don't support her at all. And so they basically pretend that these They knew at the very beginning of the vaccine program. They knew there was trouble, but they basically looked the other way. She she described it as as I said, what, so they they basically threw you under the bus? She said, no, it's worse than that. They threw me under the bus, and then they took took the bus, and they ran over me, and then they backed up the bus and ran over me again, and they moved it forward. You know, it's like that. That's how she described it. So... This is what happens to people who get injured. They get marginalized, they don't get any help. People say, Oh, no, you're crazy, it's not related to the vaccine. And people are applying the safe and effective uh, narrative. Everybody's drinking the Kool Aid. And these vaccine injured people are paying the price. And there is a a group called Died Suddenly on Facebook. It's now, um, as Facebook took it down, it grew to uh, over 300,000 people. And it was growing at the rate at the end, it was growing at the rate of over twenty thousand people joining a day there 's a thing called the precautionary principle of medicine, which says that, hey, if you don 't have an alternate explanation for this, you should assume that it 's the vaccine that caused these injuries because that 's the conservative thing to do unless you have a better explanation you 've got a better explanation oh it's global warming or. Maybe they were, you know, smoking pot or something or, you know, it's uh, a fentanyl overdose or whatever. But unless you have an explanation for how somebody can go from perfectly healthy to having 30 or more serious symptoms, you have to believe that it is the vaccine that causes that. That
1: is the, that is the obvious thing. And at the very least, there should be... Great interest and a lot of work being done to actually understand what's really happening. There should be. Yeah. There should be. But you see, i tried
0: to reach out to Dr. Nath, and I said, Hey, Dr. Nath, I've got this great database. A thousand people. I have their names. I have their addresses. I have their phone numbers. You can contact anyone. And I've got the stories, and I've mapped out all the symptoms, all 120, you know, for each of the people and so forth. You can... Dice it and slice it. You can do any kind of analysis on it that you want. Would you like to see the data? Uh, no. You know, I got a response from his assistant saying that Dr. Neff is no longer treating the vaccine injured. It was never really part of his research studies. It's being done by other people. That's not true. That's a lie. You know, that's a lie. And so in Veras, they have a program where the CDC says, we use this formula to monitor for safety signals. And the formula consists of this thing called PRR, the uh, uh, proportional reporting ratio. And they look at chi-squared, and they look at the number of events. And if all three of those are triggered, then it's declared that there's a safety signal. Now look, if they were really interested in safety, it'd be an or. Mm -hmm. you know if this is if you know if the guy sprouts horns that would be a safety signal if his legs get cut off or you know he loses both of his limbs that would be safety you know it's like you do an or condition you don't want to say oh if he loses his legs and and he uses his arms and he has a stroke then that would be a safety signal you never have an and condition for a safety signal Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be should be an or condition Mm -hmm. so these guys make it really tough and The other thing about this PRR formula is that if you've got a very unsafe vaccine, which has thousands of adverse events, then any event gets drowned out because it's the number of times that this event occurred versus the total number of events. So if you only have three distinct events, you can get a very high signal because if one of them is double, it's going to be compared to uh, to the other two. But if you have, a, let's say, you, in a ridiculous case, you have a million adverse event types, then... They're all any, tiny. They're, yeah. then, and then the ratio is always close to zero because it's a, the denominator is so large. And you have to get a PRR value of greater than 2. And you have a chi-squared, a 2 by 2 chi-squared of greater than 4. And then you have to have a certain number of events. Um, so all three have to be triggered. And I'm thinking, when, when I do this, I criticize this and I say to the committee and I write and it's in the public record that I told them that this safety signal, if you have a vaccine which is very dangerous, it's never going to fire on anything because of the PRR condition. And I I tried to contact the committee directly and they said, no, no, you have to uh, submit it through the official channels. So I submit it through the official channels and I have a record of it. I have a record that I told them this year ago. So, of course, nothing happens. They never change the safety signal. So I'm kind of curious. I say, you know, I wonder how close we ever got. And so I calculated for death. Death is over the threshold. It's like three-point something. Hmm. It's over the two threshold. I'm going like, wow. So death is so dramatic. It's so huge a safety signal that it even overcomes the flawed PRR formula for a dangerous vaccine which would bury, normally bury, all safety signals. This one was so huge that it broke through on both PRR. Chi-squared was off the charts. It was like, I think the number was like 10,000 compared to 4. The threshold is at 4, and the chi-squared number is is over 10,000. And then, of course, the number of events. You know, it's a small number of events, and this is like, it's like 30,000 you know, versus a th- threshold of like 20 or something. I don't remember hmm. the number. Right. So we're not even close here. And I have two independent statisticians who I ask, hey, could you, you know, like independently verify that I didn't get it wrong because I'm, I'm calling up the CDC people saying, hey, we've got an emergency here. You've got a safety signal of death and you're not letting anybody know about it and you're not investigating it. And I know that because we did a Freedom of Information Act re- request and there is no... Nothing in that Freedom of Information Act request, which said, you know, what kind of safety monitoring you're doing, and let me see the reports, there is nothing that says that the death safety signal in VARES has triggered. So I get the independent um, validation um, from, uh, from two different uh, statisticians. And, um, well, there's no response from the CDC. They won't even return your phone call. You talk to the, um, to the press people. There, which are the gatekeepers, because you're not allowed to talk to the scientists at the CDC. You're not allowed to call them and ask them questions as a reporter. You have to go through the press people. The press people don't return your calls. This is a vaccine which is mandated, which is throwing a death safety signal, and I can't get a call back from Martha Sharon at the CDC. I even sent emails to Rochelle Walensky. You never get a response. And so, so it, is, it is so unambiguous. And everybody who's doing this calculation
1: is getting the same answer that I got. This is obviously you know, stunning information that this fair safety signal was triggered, and really nothing's been done about it officially. Um, I'm not surprised that it was triggered, because it seems, again, even anecdotally, right, that there are serious, that the, the, there's a volume of harms out there. That's very significant. Seems right. So again, you would be expecting there'd be you know incredible amounts of work being done to try to figure all yeah, this out. Yeah, you don't have you don't have twenty thousand people a day joining a died suddenly group if there wasn't something going on. So what? So. Why this unbelievable disinterest? I mean, it's, it's not—I I refuse to believe that it's all industry capture, although I've been convinced no, that there's a not. lot of industry it's capture, not. right?
0: It, no, clearly yeah. it's not, right? Because my—our friends basically don't want to talk to me because I'm an evil anti-vaxxer. And it's because—and and I, a, an, a, I had an insider at the, the, the CDC, and I asked him, hey, what's going on here? Surely there must be A couple of people know what's going on, right? And everybody else is fooled. He says, no, it's all groupthink. It's all groupthink. They all are trained to believe that vaccines are safe and effective. They are all mentally conditioned. When they see this rise in virus, they say, oh, it must be overreporting because these vaccines have to be safe. Their reasoning is simple. They look at the clinical trials and they presume that the drug companies are telling the truth everybody is conditioned from birth that vaccines are safe and effective right your uh your pediatrician says hey make sure your kids get all the vaccines and uh, all the required vaccines your schools require in california the schools require you to get 10 vaccines and you're led to believe from the time that you pop out of the womb and you can't understand what's going on at that point but you're led to believe that the vaccines are safe and effective, all the doctors are led to believe the vaccines are safe and effective. And nobody has any interest in going and looking at the studies and so forth, because like, they, got, they got more important things to do than to rehash that the Earth is not you know, if the Earth is round and it rotates around the sun. Like, who's going to go back and check, check out that calculation and make sure the data was right? Nobody. So it's like that. Hmm. It's like, who's going to check that global warming really exists? Well, nobody. They're going to trust the scientists. They'll trust the, the um, what is the scientific consensus on global warming, right? Same thing for vaccines. They'll trust the scientific consensus. Because if there was something wrong with vaccines, surely there would be people that would be speaking out about it. So everybody makes the assumption that these vaccines are safe and effective. And then when, when the FDA comes out, and the FDA has this track record of, oh, we're really tough. We only you know, let you know, 1% of the drugs in and pass them and give them an EUA. and We're really strict. And so they have this track record. So they believe, just like I did, I believe that the FDA, because of their long track record of not approving lots of drugs, meant that they were, had a very high standard. And so when something go, goes through FDA approval, you immediately assume that it has to be safe. And therefore, anybody who says anything differently has to be a misinformation spreader, because this is the FDA. They have no conflicts of interest. They want, they're want they out there to protect the public. This is why Paul Merrick got the vaccine. So you have a really smart guy like Paul Merrick. And I asked Paul, why did you get the vaccine? He said, well, I trusted my peers. They were saying that the vaccine was safe. Those peers trusted other peers. Those peers trusted other peers. Like, there's only one guy, you know, looking at the data saying, whoa, whoa, you know. And he's either incompetent or corrupt, right? But once that guy says it's okay, then it, it just trickles down. And everybody, everybody believes it's safe. And so you have the, if the guy looking at the VAERS data is not doing his job, he's, you know, you only got the one VAERS expert, really, at the, the CDC. If he screws up, man, he's got a ripple effect that, that's worldwide. Everybody thinks it's safe. So everybody's conditioned to think it's safe. So you get a side effect, you die a week after you get the vaccine, oh, bad luck. And everybody is seeing in their own silo, they're seeing these deaths, but they think, oh, it's just bad luck for me. Because nobody's allowed to go on social media and say, hey, I got a death you know, from the vaccine, it looks like, and because they're going to have their account removed by, by Facebook, by Instagram, by LinkedIn, you know, by Medium, whatever. All these people will have their accounts removed if they tell the truth. So everybody's looking at their own silo of data thinking like, hey, wow, this bad stuff is happening to me, but fortunately nobody else is reporting it. And so then all the doctors are basically saying nothing. Everybody's saying, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. In fact, if they don't do that, they will be fired because they'll be considered misinformation spreaders and we don't have misinformation spreaders on our hospital payroll. So that's the reason for all the doctors are saying, take the vax, it's safe. All the doctors are saying it, everybody believes it. So when I come out as a engineer, ah, you're not a doctor. Oh my gosh, you don't have medical credentials. You know, you're looking at the data, but you really don't understand science. Now I have the luxury. I lost my job because I spoke out. I, I founded a um, high tech company in the digital money business. And I lost my job because one of our customers, um, basically said, hey, we're not going to do business with a company where the CEO is anti-science. And so if you want our business, um, something's going to have to change. Otherwise, we're going to go elsewhere. They said to me, look, you know, your views are causing a problem for the business. Uh, Either you silence yourself or you're going to have to leave. And I said, that's perfectly reasonable, right? Because the board of directors have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. So I didn't have a problem with that. So I left because that was the right thing to do. So I left millions of dollars on the table because that was the right thing to do because people's lives were at stake and somebody has to speak out. And I had the means to be able to quit my job and still be able to provide for my family. And I've never had any regrets that I made that decision. Now we lost a lot of friends. Most of our friends don't talk to us anymore. But I made hundreds of thousands of new friends and people are so grateful. I mean, it is such a, a difference versus before. You know, I, I would never get that, right, in my entire professional career. And if there aren't people like me that are doing this, what has happened here will go on and on and on for decades. And millions of people will lose their life or be injured by these vaccines, And I've seen multiple analyses of data, whether it's from San Diego or Ontario, that, that show there is no, no hospitalization benefit, that there is no infection benefit, and there is no death benefit. So we are doing all this. We are turning the country upside down and mandating a vaccine which is killing people. And that's why I'm doing this, because if I can help stop that and I can say, hey, I was part of that, I was there, I showed up as a human being, and I did the right thing to do. And I paid a price,
1: but I did the right thing. It recently dawned on me. This everything you're describing, you know, doesn't look very good, right? But there are people like yourself trying to figure things out. Right. And there's actually quite a few people, every day there's more people that realize that something's amiss that, you know, in the future will maybe act to change the system. Right. Because if anything, these last few years have really exposed fundamental problems that need to be resolved. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is, you know, this, I keep thinking about that this, this is a fascinating, you know, very, it, it is a very significant silver lining, because there's the problem isn't just now. The problem is something that's been stewing for a long time. It's been
0: stewing for a long time. Yeah, this, this just exposes it and it makes it obvious because what happens is people are starting to get impacted by people that they know or people in their family who are killed by the
1: vaccine. The scale, the scale of the harms is just so significant right. that, that, that it, it can't, can't be ignored.
0: ignored. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it cannot be ignored. And that's what makes this an opportunity to create change because it's affecting people's lives and people are becoming aware of this when something happens. Like uh, Dr. Asim Malhatra. Father died, cardiac issues. His father didn't have any cardiac issues at all. He was perfectly healthy. How could he have died from cardiac issues? Didn't make sense to Asim. So he said, maybe what they were telling me about the vaccine wasn't true. Let's just check the data. And so he took a look under the hood, and he looked at the data, and he's appalled. He can't believe it. So he changes from being a promoter of the vaccine on TV, and now he is telling the world that this is the biggest medical disaster in our lifetime and that the vaccine should be immediately stopped. And he writes two papers which are published in, in peer-reviewed medical journals, and you know this is happening over and over. Paul Merrick, same thing. He believed in the vaccine, took the vaccine because his peers told him it's safe and effective. And then he started meeting vaccine injured. And then he started looking at the data. And he said, Wow, all this data is negative. Oh, we, I would like to. And he is appalled at what has gone on in the medical community and what is not going on. You know, if you write a paper. That, says, that shows the myocarditis rates, like Peter McCullough did, along with Jessica Rose, they, they wrote a paper published in a medical journal, peer-reviewed medical journal, sales past peer review, gets published in the journal, and the publisher unilaterally decides to withdraw the paper for no reason. There is no stated reason that's legitimate for withdrawing the paper. That, I mean, that, that is corruption. But the medical community is silent about all of this because the ends justify the means. So we have censorship in scientific journals, we have censorship in social media, we have government-directed censorship, which is unconstitutional, where they're collaborating with social media companies to censor people like me and Robert Malone and Peter McCullough and Alex Berenson and, and other people. That's what we have today. We have a government which believes that it can govern by censoring people who disagree with it. You know, we've had some regimes in history where that has happened and it never ends well. It's just like we did with with autism uh, causing vaccines. You know, when, when there was data showing that vaccines cause autism, what the CDC did is they directed the documents to be destroyed that linked the vaccines with autism so that there'd be no paper trail. And that was exposed on a recording that was made. And it was, made, it was, a, it was a legal rec- recording, but the person didn't know, the CDC person didn't know what he was, that he was being recorded. And so he spoke honestly. He said, yeah, they required me to destroy any documents linking the vaccines and autism. And so you can bury this evidence. It's like, it's like the VAERS data shows that these vaccines are, are outrageously dangerous. And people say, oh, that's just over-reporting, right? There's always an excuse. There's always a story. Gardasil, it had, when Gardasil came out and they did the investigation of in Gardasil, Gardasil came out in, in uh, 2016, 2020, uh, 2006, sorry, um, 2009. There were so many complaints coming in that the CDC was forced to do an investigation. So they wrote up a report saying, hey, even though there are three times as many FAERS reports for Gardasil versus all vaccines combined in history at the time, and they said, oh, it's just a normal vaccine. It was just over-reporting because Gardasil was getting just a lot of press because people were so upset about the side effects. Of course, people were so excited about the side effects and reporting so much because the drug was so dangerous. And that's 2009. By 2011, 120 countries had approved Gardasil. And Gardasil is still approved today. It has a safety profile that's like, it's not nearly as bad as uh, the COVID vaccines. But that's just, it's a super dangerous drug. It should be taken off the market. The cost benefit isn't there. And, and it's, it's true for all of these vaccines that are on the market, there is no cost-benefit analysis that is done where you compare the drug versus a true placebo and you look at all-cause mortality and morbidity across like a year or two-year or three-year time frame. Never been done. Why? Because it would be negative. And so they don't do the studies. Look, if it was a safe vaccine, of course they would do the studies. It would prove to the world if this vaccine is super safe. Look, we have the data, and what they do is they don't do the study at all. They just focus on the benefits, and they don't try to assess what the downsides are. So, this has been done for vaccines since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of, 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 of the you know starting with polio vaccine, and um, it's all documented in the turtles all the way down vaccine safety book. It's, it's now in plain sight. It's now accessible. That book is a milestone that, that turtles all the way down a book. is a milestone because it's a readable book. It explains it all in layman's terms. And anyone can read it and understand the kinds of games that they play in order for the drug companies to make money and in order to create this perception that the government is protecting you and the government is, is funding these vaccines and, and doing... All this stuff to protect you when that's not the case. If they really wanted to protect us,
1: they would remove the liability protection for the vaccine manufacturers. Well, Steve Kirsch, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been, been a pleasure. Thank you all for joining Steve Kirsch and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host Yanya Kelk.)